I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at the conflict in Gaza. An attempt to secure a ceasefire failed earlier this week. And as a result, Israel seems likely to continue to assault the Gaza Strip in retaliation for rockets fired from Gaza into the state of Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinian casualties, many of them civilians, are mounting. So how's the conflict likely to develop, and what's the regional and political context? Joining me on the line from Gaza is our correspondent there, John Reid, and here in the studio, Shona Jenkins, one of the FT's specialists on the region. John, we're talking on Wednesday, so this is a very fast-moving situation. But just tell me, as you're in Gaza now, what is the situation The situation, Gideon, is that the conflict is now officially longer than Israel's last engagement in Gaza in 2012. The casualty count is higher. More than 200 Palestinians have died, and it's now gone into a ninth day. So it's sort of new superlatives in terms of Israel's ongoing war with Hamas. There were Israeli bombing raids overnight on several houses of senior Hamas leaders, and interesting developments on the Israeli domestic political front as well. John, you mentioned interesting developments on the Israeli domestic political front. What are those? What kind of pressures is the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu under? It's very interesting. He's under criticism from the right wing and increasingly from the media for not fighting a tougher war in Gaza. Some of his critics, including the Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman, are calling for a ground invasion and for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. At the same time, with more Palestinians dying, most of them civilians, he's under international pressure to show restraint. And what are the Palestinian calculations? I mean, it seems like such a hopeless situation for them to be firing these rockets in, most of which are not hitting their targets. Why are they doing it? That's how it looks from outside. I mean, I think Hamas is actually in a very good position now. Before this all started, they were in a serious crisis, both diplomatically and financially. And this has been a gift from heaven for them to go back to their resistance roots and, you know, rally people around the fight against Israel. It also helps them in their ongoing struggle against Fatah because it sidelines the Palestinian Authority. It makes them look out of touch. There was a visit from the health minister from Ramallah here on Tuesday who was pelted with shoes and eggs by Hamas youth militants, basically as a made-for-TV sign of popular discontent. So, Shona, obviously this is also happening in a wider international context. And one of the things that's changed, of course, is the other border for Gaza is Egypt, And the Egyptian attitude under the new government to Hamas is quite hostile, isn't it? So how does that affect the conflict and what are the Egyptians thinking? Well, for the new government in Cairo, and particularly its head, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Hamas is an extension to the Muslim Brotherhood, which it views as a terrorist organisation. And it has been repressing it since the coup last year. So in one sense, it's in Egypt's interest to weaken Hamas. They've already shut the borders. They've been much more efficient at closing off smuggling tunnels. This all makes it much more difficult for Hamas to function. It cannot bring in weaponry so easily. But on the other hand, there is still support on the street 
for ordinary Palestinians. And as the body count rises, there could be pressure on the government in Cairo to do something. In the meantime, this may be one of the reasons why the conflict has gone on as long as it has. They are not really that anxious to step in and mediate. And what about the other broader forms of support that Hamas got in the wider Muslim world? They used to be based in Syria. They seem to have broken with the Assads. That then has implications for their relationship with Iran, which Hamas also had a good relationship with. It has. They've become a lot more isolated, particularly since they cut off their relations with Damascus. And the eyes of the world and the Assads and even Iran have been elsewhere fighting in Syria and now in Iraq, with the rise of ISIS being seen as a very big threat in Tehran as well, perhaps less so in Damascus up until now, but that could change. So I think Hamas has found itself more isolated. And again, as John said, in this context, this is a way of declaring themselves once again in need of support, getting popular support on the street, which will push governments in the region possibly to give some more help and help negotiate some kind of settlement. And where do you think in the thinking of the outside world, the Israeli-Palestinian issue now rates amongst all these panoply of Middle Eastern problems? I mean, do you think in some ways the Israelis have a little bit more latitude because the rest of the world is worried about ISIS in Iraq, about 150,000 people now dead in Syria? Absolutely. The world's attention has been very much focused on Iraq. The rise of ISIS and the establishment of a self-declared caliphate, the appalling casualties in Syria, all of these have been the focus for the last two years. And the Palestinian-Israeli situation has sort of been left to the side. The casualty rates are very, very bad and particularly seen from within in Gaza. But the carnage and the headlines are still much more focused on what's been happening elsewhere. So I think that it's taking a lot longer for there to be opposition amongst the general public to what's going on in Israel. Also, this, I think, is starting to change a little bit more. You're starting to see demonstrations in the West against what's happening now. And John, how much do you think that plays into the debate that the Israelis are having amongst themselves? In the past, they have been prepared to pay quite a heavy price in terms of public opinion in the West. One thinks of Operation Cast Lead, but equally, thinking back, they are worried about their growing isolation. Or do they just think that with the rest of the world preoccupied with the Middle East, they can do what they feel to be necessary? I think Netanyahu is definitely worried. You're right about Israel's growing isolation. I think the Israeli public much less so. I don't think they're as in tune with us. And frankly, with Hamas rockets landing in some cases in open areas where Iron Dome doesn't hit, but being blown up in the sky over Tel Aviv, Haifa, and even as far as the Lebanese border, there's an awful lot of pressure on him just to hold out and be much, much firmer and damn the consequences. And is there beyond that a broader strategy and play or do the Israelis just say, look, we're under assault, we're not going to worry about how we solve this problem in the long run? This is what the third, fourth conflict they fought in Gaza. Did they have any vision as to where this military operation fits into a broader way of trying to deal with the issue? That's a very good question. There's no long term vision articulated on the Israeli side of what they want to get out of this. The goals of this conflict were, in the government's words, to weaken Hamas and stop rocket fire to the south, which is rather more of a band-aid than a long-term solution. I think moderate voices on all sides of this story will agree that some kind of negotiated solution to the Israeli-Palestinian impasse is the long-term solution, but it's not being discussed in Israel right now. So just to end, John, as we've said, and I should remind listeners, this is a fluid situation and it's possible that Israel will go in on the ground. But 
trying to put it in the broader context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, maybe some of this weariness in the outside world that we were talking about reflects not just the fact that there are other conflicts in the Middle East, but also that this seems like an endlessly repetitious cycle. It happens every few years, the consequences are awful, but nothing ever seems to change. Is that too cynical or is that how it feels for you? I think that reflects very well the feeling among journalists here, some of whom have covered the last two conflicts Israel's had with Gaza. Some of my colleagues have covered three. That is definitely the feeling we've been here before. The question is whether the world starts to take notice again and calls for some kind of negotiated solution or whether it throws up its hand in despair. And Shona, this is a difficult question to end with, but what about this broader international context in the, the fact that if anything's changed, what seems to me to have changed is that it's happening in a region that's now in complete turmoil in Syria, in Iraq. Does that affect the Israeli-Palestinian issue in some way? I mean, some long-term observers of the region would say that this is, in a way, at the heart of much of the conflict in the region. And underneath all the other layers, it's still something that's festering and that allows grievances to be aired throughout the region. It's a kind of banner for people to hold up, whether they be jihadis in Syria or in Egypt or even in Libya or Mali. I think the focus has definitely gone off, partly because of the failure of peace talks that were championed by John Kerry this year. But I think that this is still an issue that, until it is solved, it's going to produce conflict in the region and it's going to help perpetuate conflict, not just in Gaza, but elsewhere in the region. Okay, Shona Jenkins here in London. Thank you very much. And thanks also to John Reid in Gaza itself. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.